Friday, June 20th. It's not June. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, okay, no, actually, this is going to set the tone for the podcast. I'm, I'm kind of out of it at the moment. It's May 25th. I'm even looking at my computer. It's 5 slash 25, 2018. Mm-hmm. So it is May 25th. 2018 time for episode 51 of the Barnhart podcast and this is quite possibly going to be the scatterbrained version of super nerd in this podcast but I've had a few things going on a few a few things going on and and um glad to be back with you glad that you can you know squeeze a little snack pack version of this in and can you give us a quick um update as to tiny princess and just kind of what's going on there was the post on on my website of course asking for prayers that you guys be able to get more sleep and and high quality sleep um and so that's kind of the last that we've that the the public out there knows if you want to fill in any any blanks or add anything right and i was just looking at the last time we did a podcast i had to go back and look at look at your website to figure out what was the the episode number even uh, we were just mm-hmm. discussing that one. Is it 51 or 52 that we're up to? And uh, that's been over a month now. So yeah, yeah a lot has happened. Um, uh, obviously, she's home now. And um, I don't know. I don't remember at the time of the last podcast if she was home and had already been to the hospital and back. She's only gone back to the hospital one time since she came home the first time. But uh, one of the, you know, one of the very difficult things at this point in time is that she needs around the clock monitoring. And uh, whether that's actively watching her 24-7 or when she's in a very uh, uh, stable, calm sleep, at least being within earshot. So Mm -hmm. uh, for a while to try to keep the uh, the noise in the bedroom down so we could try to keep, you know, some some uh, get some actual sleep. uh, We had her in a in the living room. And uh, of course, the the breathing machine makes noise. And and I'm I'm convinced that uh, the creators of Star Wars listened to a machine like this back in the 70s and decided that's what Darth Vader is supposed to sound like, because this machine makes those sounds and puts out a constant flow of oxygen. But whatever, that's my requisite Star Wars reference for the for the podcast. But uh, the the point is that it's, it's an unusual noise to be hearing and trying to sleep at the same time. And then an alarm going off every three hours to feed her. And, and uh, of course, if anything anomalous happens, whether it's uh, odd sounding breathing or uh, the monitor going off because uh, the, the cannula slipped out of her nose and her oxygen saturation slipped, it, it can get a little stressful. However, we did manage to um, uh, get the, the medications adjusted so that, um, and not only the medications, but the feedings as well. So it used to be every three hours, which during the night, that's that guarantees you're not going to get any meaningful, you know, deep sleep. And mm-hmm. we can we can sort of um, make do as best we can with that by alternating feeding shifts. So somebody kind of gets six hours, but that's that's uh, a dream. Um, and and I don't mean literally you're dreaming. I mean it's it's a dream that you actually get six hours at that point. So. Uh, yeah. we, we did at the, the the last doctor checkup get the the good news that uh, we can we can change the feeding time so that only one of us has to get get up at some point during the night. So um, I could keep telling you more about this, or I could let you talk to Super Mommy. She can fill you in some. Our first guest. Dun, da, da, da. This is true. We haven't had a guest on the podcast before. That's right, and I can't think of anyone better. Everyone wants to hear from Super Mommy. And so I've, I've stressed out about how to do optimal audio quality with a third guest. I figured the best way to do it is stick it, stick somebody behind this microphone here, and just go from there. All right, cool. And joining us now, our first official guest ever on the Barnhart Podcast, and I can't think of a, a better first guest that we could possibly have. Ladies and gentlemen, direct from the Schloss, Schloss Super Nerd. It is, in fact, Super Mommy. Hello, Super Mommy. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Well, we've heard that you you are kind of sleep deprived and both you and Super Nerd have been, you know, 
fighting fighting off bugs and and um so there's been you've been lifted up quite a lot in prayer over the the last week week and a half so i hope i hope you guys are doing better and and kind of getting getting your bearings and getting your feet under you a little bit more we are it's it's been a rough ride but uh we are on a little bit better schedule now with her at night so getting better sleep at least uh longer segments of sleep here and there um, and she's she's reacting well to the change in meds. So, yes, there is an improvement. And I am- does she does she sleep um, more than a normal baby, or does she have the same, you know, percentage of the day asleep, percentage of the day awake as as any other baby? She sleeps more, um, and when she is alert, sometimes she's just very quiet and still. So we don't even necessarily know it unless we're looking right at her. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I don't know if I could say how much she actually sleeps, but I know it's got to be more than, more than a normal baby that uh, is going to be more active when they are awake. But Indeed, indeed. Well, um, you know, just uh, like I said, you're, there's so much love. And, and one of the things that's happened is that I received an email from, you know, just, just a person out there in the world who was a listener and reader of the website and a listener to the podcast. And this family and this woman had a baby, it turns out, with very similar condition to what Tiny Princess has. And we were able to put you guys in contact with each other. And um, that that just really warmed my heart that we were able to, to make that happen. Um, are you finding that you're you know, learning more? I mean, obviously, you're on a probably a near vertical learning curve and all this, but are you finding more resources and more, uh, more community out there? Yes, actually, we've been put in touch with several people, um, some with the same deletion syndrome that she has. Uh, the one that you mentioned is one that uh, their baby also had holoprosencephaly. And they have been a great help. In fact, she wants to come fly out here and help me some more. Um, which is just, well, that would be fantastic. It would be, it's truly humbling to have all the, all the people who are just ready and willing to jump at a moment's notice and help us. Um, but yeah, it's been amazing. I just talked to someone here in the, in the area who runs a, a home for, well, it's a, it's kind of a house for people to people with babies who are either diagnosed in the womb with a serious condition or, um, postpartum, you know, finding out that their baby has, usually it's something with a short life expectancy and they, they'll let you come stay at their house. They'll let you, um, they'll, they'll find resources for you. They'll get you free diapers and clothes and groceries and all sorts of things. So it has been just amazing. They, um, they are actually going to be getting groceries for us and bringing them to us next week. So, um, it's just been amazing all the, the way the community comes together and, um, it's, it's very humbling. Have you been able to also get any assistance from your parish? Cause ideally that's where it would, that's where it would start is at the parish. And then are there some ladies in the parish who, I don't know, retired nurses, anything like that? Yes, actually we have, uh, our parish has been amazing. My sister organized a meal train and, um, just recently extended that and people have come together and just, you know, totally filled that in and it's been great. It's been so helpful. She also organized a bunch of childcare, mostly from people in our parish, uh, moms and teenagers and whatnot. Some of them have taken 
the other kids to their homes for a while. Others have come in and ha- been basically mommy's helper. And mm-hmm. that has been immensely helpful because I can get a nap now and then. And then we do have a couple people who have helped at nighttime. One is a current NICU nurse, which, I mean, mm. you can't get better than wow, that. Wow, really. you can't. Yeah, that's, that's about <laughs> as good as it gets right there. Right. Wow. And then the other one is a nurse in training. And so this will be probably great for her resume. But they have both come over and done night feedings and just monitored a uh, tiny princess and, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, gotten back. You know, if, if something comes up, they'll wake us. But so far, it's been it's been pretty smooth. Um, I can't say that we've had any major emergencies, just a few small scares here and there, but uh, we're able to take care of it with either a rescue drug or a change in position or increase in oxygen. Right. Now, it, it bears mentioning, and uh, we're careful about not giving away, you know, all of you, your private information, but it bears mentioning that you and Super Nerd have other children. Tiny Princess is not your first child. Right. And so you you have other children, and you, you are homeschooling all of them. Is that correct? Well, all but the youngest two, yes. Well, yeah, the, yes. Young, the youngest two are, <laughs> they'd be, they would be a bit advanced yet. But right. yeah, so it isn't it isn't just like, you know, it's just tiny princess. It's all of your other younglings. And how are, how are your other younglings doing? I mean, are they, how how do they react to her? How are they, how are they getting along being, I don't know what, I don't want to say marginalized because that's not the right word, but are, are they, are they handling the fact generally that, you know, tiny princess has to take a certain amount of precedence, um, at, at least for a while, at least in this beginning phase? They well, let me start out with saying they absolutely love her. Um, they all beg to hold her all the time. Um, <laughs> and so that part is not an issue. We have talked to them about the fact that she may not live very long. And they seem to understand that pretty well, the ones who are able to. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of how they're doing, uh, you know, you can see the change in behavior. They're acting out more, uh, mm-hmm. struggling with obedience issues and whatnot, but some of that I, I expected anyway. And we're working on, you know, trying to emphasize to them the importance of realizing that they need to be more, uh, I don't want to say in tune, but, you know, just better helpers and more mature, yeah, really. You're yeah. you're asking them to kind of take take a, all of them collectively, kind of take a leap forward because of the circumstance in terms of their own maturity. And I, I don't think I don't think that's a bad thing at all. By the way, I think I think that can yield some tremendous fruits. And that maybe you know years from now when you'll look back at all of this and you'll say, what were the fruits of this? Maybe what you'll say is, I can see how this situation helped to form the other kids. Um, as they move into into adolescence and adulthood. So yes. I don't think it's it's entirely bad. So Yes. In fact, I even used that word maturity with one of them just yesterday. And I said, I really need you to step up and act more mature because, you know, in a situation like this, they tend to act more immature, probably to get my attention because yeah. they haven't been getting as much of that. But it's it's hard for them to grasp the whole picture. So it's, you know, th- from their point of view, I'm sure they're kind of seeing that mom is paying more attention to baby and, you know, we want more attention. And we've had some people, you know, the social workers have offered to have, you know, for instance, the other day, an art therapist 
came over and she just had them draw whatever came to mind when they thought of baby sister. And so they all just kind of started drawing pictures and then they talked about it afterwards. It, it seemed a little touchy feely, but I figured, you know, it's not going to hurt. It's, it gives yeah. them something to do. And, and that's it, right. It's something to do. <laughs> take it, take it uh, back to the office for analysis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It was, it was just one of those things. She kind of talked through a little bit with them and asked them how they felt having a baby sister with, with problems and, and were they uh, proud of her and did they like her, love her, you know, things like that. I, I think a lot of it was probably not all that helpful, but I'm sure some of it, just having some attention on them was mm-hmm. probably nice for them. And I sat down with them for a little while for part of that. So I got to partake and they noticed that, obviously. I was sitting there sure. with them. So... I think there how's was the little... how's the homeschooling going? Are you has that just have you been able to do anything? And another question I had about the homeschooling is, you know, here we are. It's it's Memorial Day weekend. This is traditionally when you know normal schools stop for the summer. As a homeschooling family, have you guys traditionally stopped during the summer, or do you continue on and are always doing activities and so forth, or are you going to make a pause this year? <laughs> Well, we have um, we have kind of kept up. We were actually ahead in a few subjects, which really helped. And mm-hmm. some of them, they even were jumping to next year's books already. Wow. So that's good because they can just stop that for now. Um, this whole last six weeks has been kind of more or less a big break, but they have done things here and there just so that they're not completely ignoring school don't want to let their minds kind of warp there but um they there's one subject that the oldest two were kind of behind in so mostly I've just been making sure they get that one in almost every day Mm -hmm. and then I give them one other one usually to give their mind at least a little something different to think about rather than just the one subject all the time and then uh, the others they could go on and on the the younger ones pretty much they're um, assignment every day is like two pages in each workbook. So I'll just say, go do two pages in this workbook or go do two pages in that workbook. And if they have questions, they can ask me or one of the older ones. And mm-hmm. usually it's just a quick, you know, here's how you do this. And they do the rest of the page by themselves. So mm-hmm. that part is, I mean, we've kind of kept up fairly well for what we've been going through, but it's it's certainly been bigger break than I would have taken if we hadn't had to deal with all this. Um, sure. As for summer, we do we do a little bit in the summer. My ideal would be to go all year and do six weeks on, one week off all year. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I've never mm-hmm. really been able to manage that because when summer hits, it's just whether you want to or not, it's, you know, it's like you can't stop the, the kids want to go outside and play and you get bogged down by the heat and things like that. So we never actually make a summer the way I would like to, but we do a little bit here and there. We try to keep the minds sharp on, on a little, and sometimes it's not necessarily schoolwork per se, but uh, those activity books that you can get that have school-like activities, but that are a little more fun, a little right. different than what they're used to. So, so yeah, I mean, well, we do a little bit in the summer. 
I got to say, I posted, I'm sure, I'm sure Super Nerd showed you right away that absolutely charming little sign that one of your (laughs) elder daughters made with the proper use of the plural possessive apostrophe in a child that young. I mean, most, let's be honest, most Americans, adult Americans today not only don't know how to use the plural possessive apostrophe and just you never you never see it correctly used most there's a lot of americans and it oh it, it just drives me crazy whenever i see a handwritten sign or something like that and someone is is putting an apostrophe in every just merely plural word just putting you know, anytime there's an S on the end of the word, they just got to stick that apostrophe in there. Uh-huh. And these, I mean, these are adults, you know, and just, so just remember that. I think that's, that's a bit of encouragement for you. If your kids are are that good already in their written English and, you know, use of punctuation and so forth, you're clearly doing fine. You can <laughs> clearly have a little bit of slack in this situation and your kids aren't all going to end up, you know, <laughs> working in a car wash or something. Right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> although working in a car wash when they're teenagers wouldn't be so bad. Right. <laughs> we, we don't want the long-term working in the car wash career track. Yes. So, but, you, but you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Yeah. So. Well, it's those same adults who don't know how how to use the correct plural possessive punctuation that uh, obviously have been writing code for the iPhone because every time you use the a person's last name, they always stick an apostrophe. It always in sticks it. an apostrophe. <laughs> always, it's awful. Indeed, just just little little tiny things like that that just get to us, but you know, off, offer it up, and even that tiny little thing can can advance us in sanctity. <laughs> At least that's how I'm going to spin that one. That's how I'm going to spin that one. Well, um, any concluding thoughts? Anything you'd like to say to the listenership out there? Well, I just want to thank everyone for all the prayers because it has made a difference. I am sure um, the. The amount of people throughout the world that are praying for us. I mean, just the fact that I've been notified of several different religious orders who are praying for us, and then probably thousands of lay people all over the place that are praying. It's just been so humbling and amazing, and I know it's helping us. I, I think I would probably be in, a, in an institution if it weren't for all the <laughs> prayers. But, uh, you know, keep the prayers coming, and... Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, we will. One of my specific prayers last week was that God would help her with her breathing, her to not struggle so much with her breathing, and she has done so much better this last week. So I know the power of prayer is working, and and uh, it's it's definitely something that we will continue to need. <laughs> And we will continue to remind everybody and we will continue to do it. We will remember you in our rosaries. We will remember you at mass. We will remember you just in our our private prayers, our bedtime prayers, everything. We will. And um, I'm really, I'm really glad you came on. And hopefully we get to, uh, we get to chat again soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. God bless. All right. You too. Well, I certainly look forward to listening to the, to the uh, playback of that because I only heard one half of the conversation. As uh, as we were talking about before we started the podcast, it has been a while since I've I've had a chance to set up the whole the whole setup here for doing doing the recording, and I intended to have two microphones, two headphones, and and have a proper three way conversation, but didn't happen. But uh, I, I could tell by the the big smile on on mommy's face that she enjoyed that part of the conversation. So oh, good, okay. <laughs>
<laughs> no, it was it was very edifying and very and dare I say even slightly pious and 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 informative. So it's very good. Nothing to worry about. No edits. And for those of you who have been wondering, hey, wait a minute. Didn't you have financial news, uh, the financial intro at the beginning of the podcast? Yes, but um, <laughs> we're, we're catching up on, on old topics, too. This is, this is going to be a, a truly scattershot, all-over-the-place podcast, and we are going to cover some financial news. Actually, today is the – if you've been getting a lot of emails about, uh, hey, we've updated our privacy notice, and by the way, probably from companies that you forgot that you ever had any kind of association and business with before, today mm-hmm. was the beginning of GDPR, the general – data protection rule. I, you know, I should know what that is off the top of my head because it's something that affects almost every company in the world at this point. And it basically means, um, well, a whole bunch of different things it means, but the, one of the biggest things it, it, it means is that you have the right to be forgotten. If you live in the EU or if you're a company who does business with even one person who lives in the EU, which is pretty much everybody, um, and anybody with international uh, businesses, Everyone has had to update their their privacy policies to be in line with GDPR. There's all kinds of rules and regulations that are now in effect as of today. And one of the happiest pieces of news that I saw today from the BBC News is that Google and Facebook have already had formal complaints filed against them under GDPR in the EU. That's awesome. Yes, yes. I'm feeling it. I'm really feeling it between this with GDPR in terms of Facebook and Google. And then hello, this, this uh, warmed my heart. Hillary Clinton publicly announced that she wants to be the CEO of Facebook. I say, go girl, you go girl. Somebody cut her a cashier's check for a hundred million, install her as the CEO of Facebook and let her drive it into the ground as she does everything else that she touches. Yes, it would be worth it. So between these two things, I'm, I'm feeling like the end of Facebook is, is maybe coming into view and it makes me very, very happy. Well, and as somebody who's not a big fan of Facebook in the first place, I can't say that I, it couldn't. It can't happen soon enough, to be honest. And mm-hmm. Yes, I do mm-hmm. have six or seven Facebook accounts, but I almost never log into them. Um, I, I have them for various, you know, official needs. I think I've got a. No, I, I think there there is a Facebook. Page no, wait. For, is it? Isn't that against the rules? Because doesn't every Facebook account have to be your uh, your name? You know, you can't be like super nerd, quote unquote. Can't have a Facebook page. And I remember this only from years ago because I remember priests saying that they couldn't put reverend or father or any honorific or any title before their name because then Facebook was reading that as you trying to have multiple accounts or something. And how do you have six or seven? Are they all your name? Uh, I have managed to out-clever Zuckerberg for the time being. Right on, right on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. This reminds me of you know. Th- this is going to be the scattershot episode. Uh, you, you talk about the priests who can't use Reverend or Father, which is their actual name. That is really who they are now. Mm-hmm. They can't use their actual religious uh, titles, but yet drag queens are just fine putting up their stage names. Oh, that's protected. That's who they are. Even though it's not, I, I am I am biting my tongue so hard right now. You don't even know, but yes, that is that is an excellent excellent point. I wasn't course, referring I mean, to the lavender mafia, but now that you mention it, that's probably where you're going with it. <laughs> the whole, um, you know, the whole thing about double standards is this is that's a typical to be expected manifestation of any culture that is in that is in massive decline rule of law issues. I mean, I mean, that's, that goes to the heart of the rule of law and equal protection under the law 
is that what equal protection under the law is supposed to combat and eliminate it are these double standards, you know, one rule for this group of people, one rule for this other group of people. Um, and obviously, as our as our culture and our society just, you know, swirls the toilet, um, it's why are we surprised? And that I mean, that goes to oh, all the people, all the conservatives. I mean, Twitter is now just openly messing with anybody who who puts anything that is, you know, to the right of Nancy Pelosi on Twitter. I think I think somebody um, said that the term sodomy is now will now get you banned. It doesn't matter what you say. If you just use the term sodomy or sodomite, that is by definition, the algos are are are, are triggered in Twitter to cancel. And this is what this is what blows my mind. Why? Why are we shocked by this why is this not anticipated and what's more and this is a rant that i think i've already given before but you know just the two sentence version why do you put up with it why don't you quit twitter if as long as everybody hangs in there hangs in there hangs in there you know the the alternative is not going to emerge the market has to open up and as long as everyone just sits around and shrugs shrugs their shoulders and says well there's nothing we can do i mean this is like the abused the abused spouse or the abused boyfriend or girlfriend with the diabolical narcissist standing there just beating the crap out of them and then looking them in the eye and saying you'll never give me up you'll never leave me because you're nothing without me and they just go yeah i guess you're right there's nothing thing I can do. I mean, it's, it's classic response to being abused. And that, and that's exactly what it is. It's a species of abuse and everybody just, just takes it happily. That's the thing that I don't understand. Um, just, just quit. I mean, your life is not, <laughs> your life is probably going to be better if you have one less damn social media thing, um, that you're, that you're constantly checking in with, hooked to addicted to and believe me if people will just draw the line i mean i i think i saw ace of spades they finally drew the line and said that's it we're quitting um but then who knows who knows if they'll stick with it or not who knows if they'll quit for four weeks six weeks and then go back and say well you know we were losing all kinds of of referral traffic and so forth so we're going to go ahead and go back and say no you've got to quit and then that allows the replacement market to open up and good grief something will emerge i mean i'm just i just pull my hair out you know basically unable to to engage in any sort of normal business and i'm just looking at what's going on in the world and you know being the the business person that i am all of these business models are just constantly coming into my head all of these these voids and vacuums and and markets that are emerging and paradigms that are emerging that nobody is is taking advantage of and could be taken advantage of and it's just ah, it's killing me but you know it's it's not it's not for me these are not easy markets to get into uh for one thing twitter yeah there there is you know the there are a couple two three i don't know how many different competitors to twitter probably one of the most serious ones I would blink Gab, on the name right about now. No, it? no, no. It's Gab is that weird one run by um, 
Is it Muslims? A, mus- a Muslim, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I mean, that's why I won't do be, that either. It's supposed to be a free speech network, but uh, the last time I looked into you it, you see. there was like an interminable waiting list just to even be able to see what really happens on that site. Uh, oh, Mastodon. That was the um, that was the uh, Ruby on Rails implementation of Open Social or something like that. But um, and and of course, I made love to make fun of it simply because it's written in Ruby on Rails, so it's guaranteed to crash, and it does a lot. But that, but that underscores the fact that well, Twitter was written in Ruby on Rails too. Don't hate me just because I said that. Um, it this is a non-trivial engineering exercise to build something like Twitter to have a massive messaging system where you send a, a message one time and one time only. Which mm-hmm. that sounds trivial, send it one time, one time only. But when it, when you get into computers and and reliable messaging at scale, you know, you're dealing with billions of devices connected in at real time, and and um, and then of course premium. Um, news feeds or, or, or uh, feeds that, that are being consumed by either either uh, news companies or I think we mentioned on a previous podcast, uh, the, the financial trading firms on Wall Street mm-hmm. are, are taking real-time feeds from Facebook and, and looking, their, their algos are looking for certain things coming through the wires as well. The, you, you get to the point where Twitter is, is not just a social network, it's also a, you know, taking a pulse of what's going on. And in terms of why stick around on it, I mean, I, I would happily see it go away. At the same time, um, it's also useful. So as, as long as it's around, I mean, this is just me, my personal opinion. As long as it's around, I'll use I'll use it for what it's worth, uh, for what I can get from it. But I'm not going to shout a tear if it goes away tomorrow. There, there's still mm-hmm. blogs. There's still email. There's still other ways of of communicating. If YouTube goes away, big whoop. There's there's other ways for me to find uh, computer videos to learn how to do Hadoop and Hive queries and all that kind of stuff. And for the two of you who understood what I just said, thumbs up. But. Um, <laughs> But, but you're the, such a nerd. But that that actually reminds me of a point I was going to make in terms of the the emerging market and and producing a replacement paradigm. There are so many nerds in the world. And the thing about y'all nerds is that you are you are passionate about what you do. And so much of this technology that has been developed is basically open source and so much of it is just People doing this stuff just for for the joy, for the challenge, for the love of it, and not really getting a getting much you know financial compensation back out the other side. I mean, there's all this open store open source stuff out there. And another example of this, you brought up YouTube. Look at look at how much content is has been loaded onto YouTube that has no chance of ever having any sort of, you know, hardcore commercial success. I mean, uber technical stuff and just uber random stuff where, you know, the expected audience is, you know, lifetime 2000 to 3000 views for the forever, you know, because that's, that's as small as the audience is. And people just keep putting stuff up on YouTube, just almost, almost in a, a public service kind of a sense. There's so much of that out there. I really think we're, we kind of have a, um, I don't know, inferiority complex or, I, I really think that we should be more trusting in the market that that these vacuums will fill. And yeah, I mean, we might end up with another Zuckerberg tyrant, multi, multi, multi billionaire emerging out of some, you know, new technology. In fact, it's 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 a foregone conclusion. It's a foregone conclusion that there will be. And I mean, in a few years, maybe in a few months, we'll all be looking back and saying, hey, do you remember Mark Zuckerberg? Remember when he was worth like 
$11 billion or whatever. And that that will be old news because we'll be on to the next the next person or the next multiple generations of people who are just going to keep moving forward with this, of course, barring supernatural intervention and the end of the world as we know it. But, you know, barring that, it's this is just going to keep going. The world doesn't end with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, he could very well be the the next um, you know footnote. Just like the the can anybody remember who founded MySpace at this point in time? It, it's yeah. gone. Um, prob- probably more people know that. Um, <laughs> why am I blanking on names when I need to recall them? Probably more people know that Justin Timberlake has a has an ownership share in it right now, and and it was involved in trying to turn it around than than who founded it. But I was going to say, in terms of all these companies and all the open source software out there that could put out a replacement, I mentioned Mastodon and open protocols for social that are, that exist. It's it's still not enough. I mean, there you, there, there is a, a real thing to the network effect and you you have to have somebody willing to you know set the darn thing up and make it work and and like i said mm-hmm. these are these are non-trivial exercises uh facebook for all the evil they do in the world they have solved some pretty interesting problems in computer science um for again i'm gonna get a little geeky here but you know php and mysql two if you're a web programmer and you hear me say that it kind of makes you cringe and for good reason not they're really easy technologies. MySQL is a database. PHP is a web programming language. It's really easy for novices to get up and start building something with those two technologies. And that's what Facebook was built in. And once they became popular and they had venture funding, they started hiring every PhD they could get their hands on or steal from somebody else to mitigate the fact that their core stuff was initially written in PHP and MySQL. And they have come out with some tremendous upgrades to these technologies and some really clever hacks. Uh, to, you know, to if you want to be a PHP programmer going forward, you can thank uh, Facebook for some of the stuff they've done to make this a better ecosystem. Um, but the the point is that also, in the in, in the terms of Twitter and Facebook and and Google with with YouTube and all all the rest, you you made the point about uh, censorship and free speech. These are free companies, or th- these are these are private enterprise co- or the private companies. They can do whatever the heck they want legally. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they have, they have no obligation to give you a voice to say something conservative. If you want to say something that, you know, I, I don't like sodomites or I wish they would all convert and become straight, you know, whether that's mm-hmm. a Mike Prince reference or not, I wish all Jews would recognize that Jesus is, is really the, the, the Messiah and become Catholics. If they don't like that message, they will shut you off. and There's nothing you can do about it. And it, I, I tweeted something you know, May 16th. How, how long goes that? Two weeks almost? It was it was a reference to the Amazon Echo, and and the idea being that people in the '60s would say, "I better not say something you know devious on the phone because the government might, might wiretap me." But now today, we've got a wiretap in your house, prob- in some cases several of them, called the Amazon Echo devices. Hey, wiretap! Do you have a recipe for pancakes? You know, yeah. if it's useful for me, hey, I'll, I'll use it. I don't mind. And um, I forget who who phrased it this way, but imagine back in the 1980s, a government agent said, in the future, we're going to require you to carry this whole thing on you 24-7. It's going to tell us where you are at all times. We will be able to turn on the the microphone and listen to you at any given time. Anything you do with this device will be able to monitor and see what you're doing. Do you think anybody would have allowed the government to go forward with something like that? But yet we all use smartphones. What do you think yep. that thing and, is? It's a spy in your pocket 24-7 ratting you out and not to the government. And that's, that's the interesting part here. Facebook and Google and, and a lot of these other companies, 
from the point of view of the government, when they need to do advanced analytics and, and data mining with all the stuff, okay, if you're the NSA and you're hoovering up terabytes of data per second from all over the globe, and you need to analyze it and cross-reference it and make sense of it, they actually don't have the, 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 the technology in-house to make sense of this. They're going to hire Google and Facebook to do it because they're really doing it in real life with lots of data. And two things here. You know, that's great business for Google and Facebook, some people who can get in the in position to, you know, to do something like that. But secondly, let's say you're an American who gets caught up in something that, you know, the government should never have intercepted your information because you're on U.S. soil and the NSA is not really supposed to operate here. But, you know, too bad it happened. And you put in a FOIA request to say, I want to know everything about how you processed and came, came up with a conviction on me. Well, I'm sorry, that was done by our third party uh, contractor. And they're not government, so we can't. So we can basically tell you to go pound sand because that's not covered by FOIA. A lot of these intelligence service capabilities are not being done by the government anymore. They're being done by private companies who have definite political ambitions of their own. I mean, Zuckerberg was publicly apologizing after the election of Trump that we didn't do enough to prevent the orange Cheeto dust dude, whatever, from getting elected. And and they they set out as a mandate inside the company to make sure that. Facebook couldn't be co-opted by conservatives in the future. You know, these are private companies. By un, un, If we're going to follow the rule of law, and that, I mean, go ahead and laugh, but if we're going to follow the rule of law, which conservatives tend to do, then these companies can do whatever they want. We can set but up our it, own Twitter it, competitor, it, but it's darn expensive. And it's, it's really complicated technology. Well, what this speaks to is the breakdown of, you know, the discrete categories of private business, private corporation and government up until just recently, you know, just within the last few years, um, especially for me, what we were all up in arms about is this breakdown between um, these mega investment banks and Wall Street and the government. And that's kind of what everyone was focused on. And now within within the past decade, obviously, and maybe you could even better um, quantify it as the last five years or so. It's been this business of these massive, um, you know, technology companies, Google, Facebook, et cetera, actually becoming f- operational arms, if you will, of the government. I mean, it's 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 kind of hard to, to argue at this point that these are that these are completely discreet from the government. There's a there's a massive, uh, if you'll permit the the very 21st century word synergy between them and a cooperation. And that that synergy and cooperation is directly related to ideological and, you know, evil, satanic ideological commonalities between the people who are in these technology companies, you know, Palo Alto, if you want to call it that, and, you know, Washington, D.C. and and New York City. And um, so I, I, I hear your point. Yeah. At the Go risk ahead. of this becoming a, a moonback conspiracy type discussion, um, you have have you ever heard of a company called or it's not a company per se. It's it's um, a venture capital firm called InQtel. No, they are a venture capital group. That was mm-hmm. put together, I don't know if it's just CIA, but it, it's a bunch of government agencies. And <laughs> no, in, in, okay, you're laughing, which the, I am, the typical, yeah. <laughs> typical reaction is either laughter or holy crap, what's our government doing? This is not, not cool at all. No, it's, it's actually makes sense in terms of, you know, how to spend my taxpayer money. Um, the, the CIA, you know, for example, was famous for being an early investor in Oracle. 
And Oracle being a, a company that, um, aside from being named for what they are, um, they, they, they had a very successful product for a relational database server. And that solved the problem the CIA had. They had massive amounts of information. They didn't know how to correlate some of this information. They didn't know how to do analysis on it. Oracle created tools and products to be able to do it. Good deal for, for CIA. They get a lot of this technology for free because they invested early on. InQtel uh, for the NSA was early investors in Google because Google said, hey, you know, with their sales pitch, we want to index the world's information. The NSA says, that's what we're doing. So if you have a way of doing this that works, we want to have a copy of this technology. We'll buy in early. And they bought into a lot of companies that that uh, the investment went to zero. But some of them, they make home runs and, and it works. And that stuff shows up at Fort Meade being used for who knows what. So it's it's something wouldn't, where wouldn't you call this the contemporary version of the put, putting out a bounty for a given technology? For example, the crown in England put out a bounty on what basically became the wristwatch. They needed a timepiece that could operate at sea because obviously a grandfather clock on the deck of a boat doesn't work. You have to have a timepiece that can work at at sea while the ship is you know, rolling with the waves and so forth in order to navigate precisely. And it was the crown of England that put the bounty on that technology. And that's, that's what caused it to happen. I, would you say that this is kind of the modern equivalent of that? Um, yeah, actually. And as somebody who, uh, as part of his daily reports, used to say the chronometers are wound. And uh, those of you mm-hmm. who have been at sea, you know that reference. Um, yeah, I, I definitely am part of that. And, and that there was also a bounty, if I'm not mistaken, on being able to come up with a way of calculating longitude at sea. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there there are very, you know, definite, you know, good things that come out of some of the government bounties. I mean, the space program, Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon, you know, by the end of the decade. This was 1960 or so. And mm-hmm. and um, so many technologies and innovations and inventions came out of that, which had nothing to do with space. You know, Teflon, Tang, uh, all kinds of other things. Um, solid rocket boosters eventually came out of this and, and other things that have nothing to do with space travel. Well, solid rocket boosters do, solid but they, rocket boosters do they, yeah. they do, but there were a lot of inventions that had to be done. You know, for example, fueling a, I just, I just read the book, um, uh, the right stuff because Peter Wolf died and there was, I, I kept, kept hearing that, Hey, he's a great writer. You should read this book as an example of it. But anyway, just the, the technological, technological challenges of how do you keep metal, from from uh, stress fatiguing and stress cracking before you can even launch the darn rocket when you're fueling it with liquid nitrogen, there were mm-hmm. so many inventions that came out of the out of the space race that it benefited all of us. And I don't know if there was if there are as many that came out of the technology boom of the '90s and and the 2000s that that benefit us all. I mean, yeah, our our little Star Trek communicators that we call cell phones. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. So they're they're useful. I mean, I. I I carry an iPhone because it makes my life a lot easier for what I do professionally. And it allows me to stay in touch with a lot of things, follow stuff and Twitter and stuff. I don't have Facebook on it. <laughs> I refuse. I don't think this makes much of a difference, but um, I, I am sufficiently alarmed with what uh, Facebook has been able to achieve um, with, with, with their apps. You, you, you have a conversation about, um, I don't know, cooking on Teflon versus um, cast iron skillets and the phone is sitting there. And all of a sudden when you, when you, when you go to your Facebook feed, you start seeing ads for Teflon skillets or cast iron. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how in the world did you do that? Cause I never searched for it, but it was just a conversation. There, there's all kinds of interesting technologies there. I'm rambling, but 
Well, there's one more paradigm that we have to discuss, and that is um, Netflix and all of that, which is now, not surprisingly, just just announced Netflix is the, how did they phrase it? It's the largest cap um, entertainment delivery company now in the world. It's bigger than Comcast. I saw that. Comcast just had a dip in their stock for any number of reasons. I don't know all the details behind that, but I did see the chart that uh, Netflix, their market cap crossed what, what uh, Comcast is. Uh, I saw something about com- about Netflix now being the the biggest uh, market cap entertainment company. I don't think they're bigger than ABC. They're they're or or Disney, I should say. Um, but they're big, and they're mm-hmm. they're constantly signing new deals. They're 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 adding subscribers like crazy. Um, but again, this well, is, and this speaking is a- of new deals, um, <laughs> yes, the the, yes. the latest deal that they just signed was to Barry Satoro and Mooch to have a production deal, and they're going to just give them carte blanche to to generate agitprop, you know, to indoctrinate especially young people, obviously. And boy, if you're subscribing to Netflix, you're putting money in the pocket of Barry and Michelle. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to participate in that. And I, and I do not, I had a net, I had a Netflix account years and years and years ago. I remember, I remember reading Denninger and it was when they Netflix raised their monthly rate from like seven, seven bucks to, I don't even remember what it was, 11 and it was just, oh my gosh, this is, there's no way, this is a completely dead end um, business model. This will never work. They'll never make any money. And it, well, I mean, it, uh, has Amazon technically ever turned a profit yet? Oh, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, they're a huge profit. In fact, they're on track to becoming like a trillion dollar company. But, but have they turned a profit? It's just, there's what, expanding your balance sheet is one thing, but actually turning a profit is another. You can, you can just keep issuing bonds all day long, you know? No, Amazon, um, Amazon's printing money. They're, they are making oh, money okay. every okay. quarter, big time. Okay. <laughs> so apparently Netflix has turned that corner too. And now they are in fact making money. And, the, you know, with all the cord cutting, you know, the, that's been another crusade on in, in this space is getting people to, to get rid of the cable or satellite. But now it's kind of, we're now seeing that to a certain extent, it's out of the frying pan and into the fire because now Netflix is, 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 is Netflix going to turn into, you know, the Barack and Michelle Obama agitprop channel. I mean, you do have the flexibility to choose what you watch. I did notice from the very beginning about about Netflix was that there was a massive amount of sodomite content, you know, you know, C-list movies about about sodomites. Then there were just the catalog and all of that was just huge. And, you know, but I wanted to watch, I don't know, reruns of the Andy Griffith show or something like that. And sure enough, you couldn't find that, you know, you couldn't find anything that you actually wanted to watch a lot of the time. I'm sure the catalog has just gotten so much bigger now, but now they're actually, now that they have this, this power and now that all this cord cutting is happening and, and, and it is true that it, if you think about the market, of course, people would prefer to have the preference to just, you know, consume, um, consume flicker box entertainment uh, at completely at, at their leisure on the on their um, on their on their own schedule, the the whole notion of having to be sitting in front of a television at a certain time in order to see 
the the uh, the program that you want to watch short of oh remember i remember being a kid in the in the mid to late 80s and i was the only one who could figure out how to set the timer on the vcr to record something in absentia i was i was i was known for this, this is the only person who who knows how to set the vcr and now we i mean just sit back and think about that and laugh well you talk about um and being being with Netflix way back when, does anybody remember? Well, of course, a lot of will, but do you do remember that they used to, they got their start mailing DVDs? Oh, that's right! I forgot about that. Oh my goodness! Yeah, you know what? You know what I had like way back, like in ninety ninety nine. Do you remember Divix? I, which was I remember the technology. Was, yeah. It was a, it's a, it's a slightly different format of DVD, but it was that whole, you mail, you mail stuff back and forth. Um, you would mail movies back and forth to the, the DivX headquarters. And I mean that it didn't last very long at all, but I remember I got goat roped into that in like 99 and wow. Yeah. Blast from the past, man. That's if crazy. I, if I remember correctly, that was video CDs. So that was a compression algorithm that was way inferior to DVDs. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's why it failed then. Good to know. I never had a Betamax though. I never had a Betamax. I had to think about that one for a minute. That's right. That's the one that came before VCR. Before VHS. Yeah. Or VHS. I mean, that's right. Wow. Yeah. We are all, we actually had notes to talk about. We're all, we're yeah. all off, off the map here. Funny how that works. Let's see, we're talking we about, have a, we have a lot more and a lot of this stuff um, can save. It's not, um, it's not uh, gonna, gonna get old, but we, I mean, we covered a lot of ground and it's kind of financially and current eventy and tech and very tech nerdy. So oh, we, I think we we'll, even, we'll make a lot of people happy. We haven't even talked about cryptocurrency and I'm looking back at my GDPR notes. One of the, one of the aspects of GDPR, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is the right to be forgotten. And so the company for which I work is very much in the United States, but we do have, I don't know, a client or two in, in the EU. And so, mm-hmm. the, so the, the legal team decided, yes, we need to comply with GDPR. So anybody uh, who has ever visited the EU while they're over there can call our company and say, my name is whatever. You must erase all of your information from your, from your company that, uh, about me. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So the, under GDPR rules, that's that's actually a requirement that if somebody says you have to, or, you know, you, if they call Google and say you have to er- erase the information you have about me, or they call Facebook and say you must erase that shadow profile or any information you have about me, under EU law they have to do it. So mm-hmm. we, and any listener, regular listener of the show knows that uh, Ann and I are not very high on cryptocurrency. Well, Bitcoin. One of the aspects of how it works is it has an, an immutable blockchain. The data on the blockchain cannot be changed. In theory, some people think that this that all these transactions are anonymous. They are very much not anonymous. They it, it may take some work to figure out who's who on the blockchain, but it can be done. So in the case of uh, blockchain, uh, in the case of Bitcoin and other blockchain type uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, if somebody were to say under GDPR, I want my information removed from the blockchain. Uh, oops. <laughs> well, let's just take for let's just take for a moment, take this seriously, and say, okay, fine. As the Bitcoin board of directors, not that there is one, we're going to say, okay, fine. Let's go back and find this person's transactions on the on the blockchain. We're going to remove them. Well, now you got a problem. The running encryption that secures the immutability 
of the blockchain is based on all of the data on the blockchain that came before it, meaning that all the data integrity is gone from any point beyond when somebody says, this is my transaction, take it out. I have a right to be forgotten under GDPR. Now, this is more theoretical than anything else at this, at, at this point because Bitcoin's not a company. It's a thing. But uh, there is a theory that um, I, I guess if they could figure out who to sue about it, somebody could bring action in the, in the EU courts and say, you have to remove, I don't know, uh, Joe Schmitz's information on the, on the blockchain. But the, as soon as a, a European court says this, if you were to try to implement this, it destroys Bitcoin. Indeed. <laughs> kind of had its own little self-destruct built into itself. Um, I can't say that I'm surprised. Um, and it just, it, to me, the, the take-home point in all of this is that what, what all these cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the biggest among them, obviously, but all cryptocurrencies, it seems to me that what all of these paradigms are trying to do is that they're trying to deny the fundamental truth that that money is is a derivative of of human life and existence itself. They people keep trying and I can understand I can understand the logic here but it it just doesn't work. They keep trying to completely divorce money from from the human person and from human existence and what they're missing is you know what is now kind of halfway regarded in in the um internet land of the of the right or the tea party right or whatever you want to call us is kind of my theory of money that money is in fact a fungible proxy for man's capacity to labor, produce, and create through time. We are the gold. We are the gold. And that's why you cannot divorce these things. And you cannot establish a paradigm like a cryptocurrency thinking that you're going to take all of the human element out of it and make it a completely external thing because by definition, ont ontologically, it is not an external thing to human beings and to human people. It is intimately tied up with human beings and human people, which is why the character, the morality, the rule of law within the given society is absolutely essential to the, the quality and, and the market's response to a given currency. This is why, for example, um, I can't remember when it was, but it was when it was when before they Hillary Clinton set up the, the murder of Gaddafi and, you know, all of that in Libya. Gaddafi was talking about cooperating with, I don't know who else it would have been like Nigeria. What other country in Africa has any actual resources? So Li Libya has oil. Nigeria Actually, has oil. Say again. A few of them do. A few of them do. They were going to form this kind of African confederacy and they were going to start a gold and presumably petroleum backed currency, if the, I'm not the mistaken. gold dinar. Yes, yes. And it it wouldn't it wouldn't work. It, even if it was gold backed, it wouldn't work. And the reason it wouldn't work is because Muslims and um, you know, sub-Saharan pagan pagan Africans are a bunch of lying crooks and thieves who have who are known to for being some of the most corrupt human beings on the surface of the planet. And that's saying something. 
even if they're claiming that they have a gold backed currency, nobody would trust it. No one would trust it. Like, oh, come on, you, what are you going to show me? Vault, vault receipts? You're going to show me vault receipts to prove that you have, you have this gold. Um, you're going to, you're going to, what are you going to do to prove that, you know, there aren't tungsten cores in every one of your uh, gold bars, et cetera, et cetera. Because we know these people, their culture, that they are liars and cheaters and, and frauds and that there is no rule of law and there's massive corruption. And so it doesn't matter if they try to do something like that. Why do you think that a, a Russian currency hasn't ascended, a Chinese currency hasn't ascended, or a Sino-Russian cooperative? It's because of the corruption. It's because of the godlessness of the people, and everybody knows that. Now, here's what's interesting. Graph, graph, the the let's call it the relative trustworthiness or the the inherent moral quality of let's say the United States versus let's say China okay and and what the global perception of that is okay clearly the United States that line is going to have a significant negative slope because we are in descent we are a culture in descent our rule of law is breaking down. Our morality is breaking down. We've turned our back on God is basically what I'm saying. We're, we're moving into a thoroughly post-Christian neo-pagan paradigm. So whether anyone wants to admit this or not, and this is what so many people, I mean, you just, you're just talking past them at this point because they don't want to have any conversation about any of these moral or religious questions. And it's inescapable in terms of economics. So if you graph the United States, a line of the relative global trustworthiness of the culture of the United States, that's clearly got a negative slope. It's just going down, 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 down. Let's assume that the Chinese is either a line that goes straight sideways <laughs> or has a, an ever so slightly upward slope over the past, you know, 20 years or so, let's say. Um, at some point, and this is the interesting question, this is kind of the, the socioeconomic question, when are those two lines going to intersect and cross? And when is, when is it going to be the case that we are so far gone in the United States and, and in the Western world that our line, our, our plotted point on the graph is now below that of China? I tell you what, the day that happens and the global market rec recognizes it, bam, that's when you've got your your Chinese petro yuan or whatever you want to call it. That's when you're going to have the, f the flight to quality. And what is the quality? The quality that people will be fleeing to is not you know, crypto anything. It's not backing necessarily by precious metals or petroleum or anything like that. The, the quality that people will be trying to flee to is integrity and rule of law of the populace that is backing is behind whatever currency it is that we're talking about. And I've got to think that we're approaching that at a, at a high rate of speed. It hasn't happened yet, but it's, it's going to happen. Well, in one of the things that cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin especially, tries to achieve is is to introduce an element of trust into as a digital third party between parties who don't know each other, which really gets to the point of being able to, you know, the ultimate trust is to look somebody in the eye and shake their hand and and say, my word is my bond and I will deliver on this. Or sure. here's, here's the actual 
payment in kind or commodity or whatever to make to make a trade, it it tries to abstract the 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 human element of it. And uh, I would imagine anytime you do that, somebody's going to try and figure out how to fraud that. Whereas you know you can only kind of get away with with defrauding somebody one time if you look them in the eye and shake their hands. Like you're not going to get away with it completely, and it ain't going to happen again. Well, I would actually say that we already have a paradigm like this, and it's ah, germane to to this podcast in this space, and that is the the notion of an exchange, a central exchange. When you're trading futures, as I used to do, for example, one of one of the the core principles of of futures exchanges and futures trading is that the exchange stands in the middle of every transaction as the universal counterparty, which means that I don't have to have any uh, worry or doubt or question about whoever it is that is on the other side. Let's say that I was, you know, one of my clients, not me, one of my clients was selling 10 loads of fat cattle for June delivery, whoever it was that was on the other side who bought 10, 10 loads of fat cattle for June delivery, whoever it is, be it a speculator, be it, um, you know, a packing plant, anybody, it, it absolutely does not matter. And not only does it not matter, one never knows, one never has any information about who is on the other side, except maybe who the clearing firm was on the other side, but absolutely no, no disclosure of who the individual party or even parties. I mean, let's say that I'm selling 10 contracts, maybe the fill on the buy on the other side was, you know, one client, one customer doing two, another customer doing three and another customer doing five. And that, that equaled my 10. It, it had absolutely no bearing on, on anything, who those other people were and if they were even credit worthy or not, precisely because the exchange stood in the middle as a universal guarantor. So now the question with cryptocurrencies is, okay, you want to have the same sort of a thing. You want to have this, this thing in the middle. Well, who, who is the thing? Who do you call? I mean, what what is this entity that is the universal guarantor? And that's how it's very different is that it it actually technically isn't isn't anybody, but it's everybody. And it's it's trying to like I said, it's trying to make it all completely impersonal and really take the human element out of it. And you simply can't do that with money that just and I think this is the the key issue that people are missing in the world today in terms of monetary theory is the the absolute criticality of the quality, the moral quality of the people behind any sort of of currency or or monetary paradigm. Well, in the case of cryptocurrencies, you're not trading promises. You're trading the actual thing at that point. It would be it would be like saying in the case of and maybe maybe this is how the exchanges work. Maybe it would be uh, in the case of somebody who's buying a contract on the exchange, they have to put the money up front. So the the exchange is is operating as an escrow sort of. That they have to not, put the margin. They have to put in 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 agricultural commodities. It's usually three percent of the notional value of the contract is the margin. That's why they're so highly leveraged. because okay, so you only have to put three percent down. It, it's a promise, as opposed yes. to cryptocurrencies. The whole thing is there as a the, the the whole amount is there. It's not promises. It's it's the actual thing. And the cryptocurrency network itself is 
kind of like an escrow service in a sense. So that if, if somebody says, I want to give you 0.75 Bitcoin for whatever it is that you're selling via with Bitcoin, um, the, the transaction system is saying, do you really have the Bitcoin to transfer? And once the transfer is capable of being made, then the signal is sent to the seller. Okay, the, the collateral is, or the, the, the funds are in escrow, able to be released on your satisfaction of the fact that the network is saying, we've got it and we're willing to give it to you. But what happens when the, what happens when the electricity goes out? My clients still had the cattle, you know. <laughs> so I mean that, and that gets back to like episode one. This is back to the the very very first conversation we had about cryptos. Is you know these these core concepts. You know what what happens when the electricity goes out? What happens when just the internet goes out? You know. Uh, it was episode nineteen, actually, but uh, yeah, yeah, episode if, nineteen. Yes, yes. If the internet, <laughs> if the internet goes out, as as we laid the groundwork for that in episode nineteen, uh, even dollar exchanges don't work at this point because ninety percent of yeah. dollars are all electronic anyway. And it's one of the things that the cryptocurrency uh, proponents like to point out is we're already dealing with electronic money. I mean, I get paid by direct deposit. I pay most of my bills by electronic bill pay, one way or another. I almost never have cash. Um, hey, and this this can segue into our final point of the podcast. Did I send this to you or did you send it to me that I, I was shocked by this, that Germans are some of the most um, uh, strident users of cash? I would have figured that Germany was just sprinting headlong towards being a cashless society. And that assumption was wrong. Germans are some of the most strident um, uh economic participants who who insist upon using cash. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I sent that to you and I I, I thought I sent it to you because I, th- I for one thing, I thought you'd find it interesting, but it, it also strikes me I I've heard, I've heard the the characterization before that Germans are real rule followers. So if you tell them you have to use cash or you're supposed to use all digital, they'll just do it. Uh, there there's the there's the stereotype fairly accurate and and uh, well-earned that uh, if, if a law is passed in Germany uh, to sweep the street at four o'clock in the afternoon, which apparently was a real thing at one time, Germans will go out and do it. Whereas mm-hmm. in France, they pass laws just like so and spit on them and ignore them. But uh, no, it, it is interesting. Um, I, I'm, I said that to you more, more because it was, it was uh, germane to financial topics and cash. And um, a lot of the stories I've seen with regard to cash is like the, the war on cash and trying to go cashless all around the world and, Apparently mm-hmm. the Germans don't want to let go of their cash yet. That's interesting because, you know, they are basically the driving economy in the EU. And, you know, I've been seeing that they're, the EU has been doing all of these measures. Um, they banned the the 500. They had a 500 euro bill and apparently they banned all but banned that. You can't even try to pass a 500 euro bill. Um, now they're trying to work on essentially banning the 100 euro bill. And then there's other countries. I don't know if, you know, France, Italy, Spain, what it would be. But there's a maximum uh, cash transactional limit that you can do. So if you go, for example, if you're in Europe and you go to Ikea and you buy a bunch of furniture and you spend like 3,000 euro on furniture, you can't whip out. 3000 in cash and pay for it. They will not do the transaction. You have to use um, a card of some sort. So um, I, I, I was really surprised and I'm glad that you send that to me that it is the Germans, but then you're probably right. I mean, all they have to do is pass a law and say, okay, all Germans now you have to use a, 
a, a wallet on your cell phone even or, or a, a chipped card for all financial transactions. And yeah, the Germans are just oddly, they have a, a very odd docility like that. Um, and um, I, I don't know. I don't, it's, it's weird when you look at the American culture and just how Germanic the American culture is in terms of ethnic you know, composition and Americans just really don't have that, that weird, weird docility that, that Germans have. I don't know. I guess maybe that's the, the influence of the Irish or something like that on, on American culture. But wow, that's, that's another episode that, that would be a fun one. That would be some of the most politically correct, incorrect conversation you could possibly have. I, I, I'm excited about this. I think this should be the next episode. Oh, then we need to get Charles Murray on the podcast or something like that. Some, somebody to talk about uh, the, the inherent genetic properties that go into IQ and everything else as well. Now, oh, when, when, yes. when, it, when it comes, when it comes to, when it comes to the United States and, and uh, temperaments like this, I mean, nationally speaking, we're mutts. I mean, you, you can't look at us and, and talk, talk about, Americans in the same way that you talk about uh, Europeans, um, you know, there is a definite German temperament. There's a, well, at least there used to be. I mean, now, now that migration has picked up with, with, uh, you know, so many people coming in from Turkey and anywhere else into the, into the EU, things change. But that also, Mm. this also also gets to something I've mentioned in a previous podcast, talking about uh, studying a lot about Roman history through podcasts. One of the things that really struck me is that throughout, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years of Roman history that was covered in these two podcasts I listened to, the idea that there was constant movement of everybody from one country to another, the whole idea of the Franks, for example, they're Germans, actually, Germanic tribes, but you think, you hear the word Franks, you think France, that's French. It's like, mm-hmm. not really. Um, not it was actually, really. the Celts were really the ones who occupied France, but the Romans pretty much wiped them out genocidal fashion at the, at the, mm-hmm. at the rise right before Julius Caesar. And that's why there was this vacuum in France for the Franks to come in. The point, the point being here is that throughout the Roman Empire, if you study the history, two things really stand out in mind. And it's why I've stopped using the phrase, if I was the benevolent emperor of North America, things would be fine. Maybe for five or six years, but as soon as I'm dead, it would all go to pot again. And that happened over and over and over again in the Roman Empire. You'd have a reformation of some sort, things were good, and then you know the, the, the successors screwed everything up. But the other mm-hmm. thing that was constant, it was the migration of, of peoples, whether it was the Huns pushing them from behind or, um, I don't know, the, the, the Mongols pushing later. People don't stay in one place. You know, as a species, we have the capability of locomotion and we use it. So the idea yep. of saying that the, a particular genetic type stays in this geographic location, it ain't true. Yeah. That's one of the things that blew my mind the first time I had it explained to me is that someone said, have you ever noticed how Russians like when you watch the Olympics or something and you see the Russians and they all there you can look at a Russian and you can tell that a Russian is a Russian because he's got kind of almost ever so slightly slanty eyes. And this person said, you know why that is, don't you? And he's no, that's they're Mongolian. That's that's Genghis Khan coming across. That's the Mongolian hordes coming across. And Russians look the way they do and are kind of half crazy the way they are because they're they're Mongolian. It never occurred to me. And in fact, you can even see that a little bit in the Eastern European Slavic nations. You can see that 
that Mongolian influence um, on people who it never even occurred to me to think of them as being anything other than totally white. And that's not the case. Oh, what a wonderful conversation this will be. Oh, looking forward to this. And we should start taking aggressive notes. And, and we, we can't. We absolutely. We've done. We've had our first guest. Now we need to find another guest who can come in and stir up the pot. What a wonderful conversation. I'm not joking, Charles Murray. I I, I got to look at yeah. the book the book title. It was he, he got in just tons of hot water about this, and it, it was a a um, study of IQ. And one of the things he meant he mentioned in his book was a correlation of studies of race and IQ as well. Which oh yes oh the the big political hot water thing was that the suggestion was, and he didn't say this in his book either. It was just an observation from clinical research that apparently people who with, with dark skin uh, Africans tended for some reason unknown. And he was very clear to say this wasn't necessarily a genetic uh, property of being African scored lower in IQ. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of people homed in on that as saying, Oh, well you're anti-black. Well, you could also take the opposite tack of saying, no, he's pro Asian because they came in at the highest, even, even higher, right. even higher than Jews. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's not a dig on Jews. They're actually they're smarter than than almost everyone except Asians. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. It, it's, no, it's very interesting. There very have been serious academic books written about IQ and race. Oh yeah, and it's a it's a serious topic, and I think it should continue to be discussed. And we shouldn't allow people to just you know bully bully us into not not discussing something that obviously is is not just germane, but massively important to well, you know, glo global dynamics going forward. I don't know how tremendously relevant it is in terms of day-to-day policymaking, but on the one hand, it's kind of stupid to just shut it down because somebody is saying something that is that you consider to be an, an inconvenient truth versus, um, gee, is there something that is um, nurture-related to this? Is there something we can do to you know, further develop people. What is it about Asians that makes them so dang smart? Is there something we can learn from them? Maybe mm -hmm. it's cultural. Maybe we can, uh, maybe we can imitate these, these cultural attributes and apply them and see similar results. I don't know. That wasn't the reaction to this book. It was more, mm, you're, you're hating on people who aren't white. So whatever. All the more reason why we should do a show about it. All right, sir, <laughs> you have, you have a tiny princess and a super mommy that you need to go look after. So, Let's wrap this one up. Indeed. And if I was organized, I would have had my exit script ready. But I know that we're going to be thinking, <laughs> uh, let's see, we're thinking all the donors. Um, we have the donor masses every day that ends in Y. I know that one. Yes, yes, absolutely. Donor masses every day that ends in Y. Plus, we have a requiem mass said every week for everybody, everybody who died in the previous week. So everybody gets a uh, trad requiem mass. And I am, I hate, I loathe doing this, but I am going to start mentioning um, if if in your charity, if you would consider making a a small um, subscription type donation, if you enjoy the podcast or the barnhart.biz space to read, um, <laughs> I was talking to Super Nerd about um, about Big Macs and what, how much is a Big Mac these days? Is it like you know? If you just not not the value meal, just the sandwich, it's got to be about five bucks by now, I right? Was say For six. a Big Mac. But, Five or six bucks, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like eight if you get the value meal or something like that. As it tells you, it tells you how often I go to McDonald's. In the middle of the United States, five or six. Um, in 1998 in Japan, it was the equivalent of ten dollars. So but, yeah, but that I that's, it. I, that may have been Kobe beef. I don't know. 
So, you know, uh, I look at, you know, when donations come across and don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining, but when a donation comes across, it's like, you know, 50 bucks, a hundred bucks. I'm just, it's like, I kind of get punched in the stomach just a little bit because I'm thinking, good grief, am I, am I actually providing this person with $50 worth of actual useful utility or $100 worth of actual useful utility? It's, it's easier for me some, to process it. And people say I need to do better about this of being, you know, not being, not pretending that I'm still in the same situation that I was in, you know, 10 years ago when I was at the peak of my economic powers. But I, I look at, at like five bucks. Well, okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe listening, listening to a podcast could provide somebody with, with $5 worth of utility and satisfaction. You can hear that I, that I studied, studied economics in school, you know, or, or whatever that is. So, um, I use I use the continue to give button um, because I don't do PayPal um, and continue to give. I think they clear through WePay and I've had very, very good luck with them. I've been with them for goodness, three, three years now with not not a lick of difficulty. And they're really good people and really good customer service. So in your charity, if if you would, I would like to develop a little bit more um, the subscription base, you know, on, on the podcast and um be able, ideally, I'd like to get out about six months ahead. I, I've always traditionally tried to stay out ahead on, on my rent, and I'm not right now. I'm just caught up and, you know, hand to mouth. And I'd love, I would love to get about six months out ahead of my rent. So if listeners out there get a little bit of utility out of the podcast, I would encourage you to visit the continue to give donation button. And you can set up a even a recurring, uh, a recurring profile is what they call it. And um, I think you can, there's one of the selections is just until I tell, tell you to stop, or you can say, do it for however many months or whatever it is. So it's a nice little interface. It makes sense. It's easy to use. So I will put that plug in. And of course, all I can give back to you is, is the greatest thing I think that I can give back to you, which is having the Holy and August sacrifice of Calvary offered for the salvation of your soul and for all of your intentions every day, which is pretty darn cool. So, um, there, there's my plug for that. And just, uh, as always my eternal gratitude and eternal gratitude to super nerd, super mommy. And as I promised super mommy, when we were wrapping up that portion, we will absolutely all continue to keep you lifted up in prayer and, um, just all the best to you and, and, you know, anything that, that I can do or we can do behind the scenes to help you guys out. Um, it sounds like you're, you're decent. Okay. In terms of insurance and all of that. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's cool. That's squared away. Not, (laughs) not having to, you know, sell off children or anything like that. So, so that, that's all good. No, no, there, we, we joke that, uh, there, 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 um, their their behavior has been a little little retrograde since they they haven't been getting as much uh, attention as before. But no, we we we're not going to sell them on eBay or or Etsy, which is the place for homemade goods. But um, it, no, we're we're not going to do that. Um, okay. and, and talking about donors uh, and people who do monthly donations, there are actually a few who are set up for that on uh, Super Nerd Media, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Arthur or Thomas PMJ. Paul, JPF, Charles, Richard, Carolyn, and James. It's been over a month since we did a podcast. That's why there's such a long list here. Uh, thank you very much. And if you actually, you know what? Forget about Super Dirt Media this month. Go, go support Anne. 
And um, if you have no, 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 share, <laughs> spread it around, share the love, share the love. <laughs> there, there, there were some uh, very uh, non-trivial, very generous donations um, shortly after uh, Tiny Princess Princess was born, and, and you'd posted about it. And uh, that's, I can't say thank you enough to people like that. I mean, yes, insurance is going to pick up, you know, massive amounts here, but there's a very non-trivial uh, deductible as well deductible, that goes with that. Yep. 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 Um, so that that definitely helps with that. Um, email address. That's in my closing script, which I didn't have ready. Uh, email address. If you have uh, feedback, comments, suggestions, or input for future podcasts about. I don't know, IQ, race, anything like that. Uh, the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. We mentioned the benefactor masses. I mentioned the donors to um, uh, Super Nerd Media. And don't forget the Matthew 1720 initiative, which Anne mm-hmm. is much better about uh, describing than I am. The Matthew 1720 intention is that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified. That Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope for low these past five plus years now, all the way back to when he was validly elected in April of 2005. Furthermore, that Bergoglio repent of what he has done, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. And that likewise, Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of what he has done, die in the state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. Nothing, nothing less than that is satisfactory. Um, don't, don't hand a, a knot to our lady and say, could you please just untie this one third of the way? That makes no sense. Go big or go home. We want a complete, total, perfect resolution to this, which ultimately ends with both men achieving the beatific vision. Don't forget about that. That's, you know, obviously, um, you know, sparing all all of the people who are being scandalized into eternal damnation. Obviously, that's that's absolutely huge. But don't forget that we've got to get both Bergoglio and Ratzinger into heaven. And, um, if we storm heaven and we give this to our lady undoer of knots, I believe that anything is possible and it's not, it's not childish or immature or being in denial or anything like that. It's taking God at his word and, and saying you can do anything and I believe you can do anything. And so I'm going to ask you for this, which seems to be like one of the biggest things ever, one of the biggest messes to fix ever uh, that's all right. God is God and it, he can fix this, but we have to ask him. We have to ask him. So that's how I pray the Matthew 1720 initiative. And in terms of uh, big asks and in, in prayers for conversions, look up the story of um, Blessed Bartolo Longo or St. Cyprian, mm. who used to be a sorcerer and became, I think it was a bishop before he died. Um, St. Cyprian, St. Justina. I mean, there are people who, objectively speaking, at, at if you were a casual observer Christian at the time, you'd say there's no way that this this person could ever die in the state of grace, and yet they did. I mean, we're talking about yeah. people who were who were confessed, not confessed. They these were satanic priests ordained and everything. Yeah. Um, yep. And yet, anything's possible. Yep. But we have to ask. We have to ask. And in some so cases, we go. have to do things too. I mean, uh, the, the the martyr Justina gave her life um, partially to to convert uh, Cyprian. So mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it may take blood in some cases to convert people. And I, and I think it will before it's all over, sadly. But um, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yep. Yep. All well, right. I think that's it for this week. 
All right, let's call it. And we are making absolutely no promises as to when the next episode will be. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see you when we see you, right? Something like that, yeah. All right. Until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. <laughs>